Hello and welcome. You're listening to the Safety and Health Podcast by Safety and Health Practitioner. I'm your host, Ian Hart, and I'm the editor of SHP. On this episode, we'll be focusing on work-related stress and well-being. You'll hear from senior psychologist for the HSE, Peter Kelly. Then, in part two, we speak to Inspector Phil Spencer, who is in charge of the Blue Light Programme at Cleveland Police, about the stress of working on the front line during the pandemic. Phil was also the winner of SHP's Trailblazer and Workplace Wellbeing Award for 2020. First up, I spoke to Peter Kelly, Senior Psychologist for the Health and Safety Executive. Peter is primarily responsible for providing the HSE and the government with advice on work-related stress, mental health and well-being. During the interview, we spoke about the additional challenge the coronavirus pandemic has had on employee stress, and we also touched upon the upcoming ISO 45003 standard. I began by asking Peter to define work-related stress. So work-related stress would be those things that occur in work. So if, if you look at the term stress, it's a perceived inability to achieve a desired goal. So in that context, that's what people talk about when they talk about work-related stress, it's in work. So, so stress are those things that come along in the best useful description. Is you can be going through your day, you're on target, you feel like you're on control, and then you get these additional elements that come in. Now, if you get those periodically, that's fine because actually that's part of work. It's where you get sustained levels of extra activity that you can't control and deal with. A really good illustration is Yerkes and Dobson's law, which I quote, which is 1907. Okay, So in 1907, Yerkes and Dobson's law said you need pressure but you don't need too much that leads to stress and you don't need not enough because that leads to rust out which has the same symptoms so contextualizing it stress has probably been around for hundreds of years the difference we have now is that the demands are very different and which is why we've seen the most days lost to work related stress and mental health at any time from any of our stats at 17.8 million Historically, there's been a bit of a stigma around mental health. Do you think that's improving within the workplace and changing? And how do you, would you suggest the company can, can improve that culture within an organisation to, to kind of get rid of that stigma uh, and help employees come forward and talk about it more? I think they have to normalise the conversation about that actually work-related stress or mental health is actually very often a normal response to an abnormal situation. You know, if you had to ask me this question 15 years ago, I would have said stigma was a fundamental issue in driving people's lack of willingness to act in this area. That is breaking down. You know, I routinely hear people having conversations about, oh, I feel stressed or, or actually my mental health's being impacted. But that's because society is actually coming up and going, well, we need to do something about it. Also, we have a group of people that have come through, millennials and Generation Z, who expect you to look after them when they're in the context of work. And why wouldn't you? It's a fairly clear relationship. If your work is looked after, your organisation is looked after. And if you think burning people out is a good thing, then it won't be because they're the businesses that don't survive. You need people to survive. And in that context, I think that's really important that we make looking after people's mental health just the same as we make it putting a guarding on a machine. And, and obviously, as a HSE inspector, I would be asking the question, how have you protected your workers' health? So I think that's important. And you mentioned there about abnormal situations. We're obviously in the, in the middle, hopefully coming towards the end of an abnormal situation now with the coronavirus pandemic. How do you think the pandemic and the various lockdowns, mass working from home, how has that all affected work-related stress? 
It's interesting you ask, Ian, because I think there's actually three parallel pandemics going on at the moment. I think one is a global recession, which is a pandemic in its own right, in you know, losses of jobs. And we know that impacts people's mental health. We have an influenza pandemic in people, you know, going through COVID-19. And we have a tidal wave of mental health issues happening where people are experiencing significant levels of mental distress. So it's interesting the word we're nearly out of it. We may be out coming out of the COVID-19 experience. We may be looking at the embers of growth in recession, you know, coming out of that recession. And it's very small embers, but we're certainly at the very starting point of what is likely to be a generational impact of this pandemic on people's mental health. So why I think mental health is important now more than ever is because we know actually the way you work, how you work and where you work will fundamentally change. Me and you are both sat in our homes doing this podcast. In the past, I might have sat, been sat at my desk and you might have been sat at your desk in an office and that won't necessarily happen. And what we've done at HSC is try to adapt to that and adapt our information that we're giving out with people. So, for example, when we talk about the management standards, we've got the talking toolkits now because we acknowledge people need to have those conversations about mental health. They need to have those conversations about stress. We've updated our guidance to reflect that. I don't know if you're aware, but in the COVID-19 risk assessments, you are required to put in measures to protect and then support your people's mental health. And more broadly, moving forward, how will employers have to address work-related stress in the future as, as flexible and remote working becomes more common? People start to get used to the fact that actually, you know, maybe for long term now, people are going to be working from home two or three days a week and, and not be fully office-based like they were before. I mean, traditionally, I guess, if you do ask, could you work from home and say, no, you can't possibly do your job from home, well, that statement no longer really exists, does it? Because great swathes of the population, the employed population, moved on to working from home. But here's the interesting thing. If you'd asked me before, what were the main stresses? I would have said high demands, low control, low support. That's the, the Karasek model of understanding stress. If you ask me in the pandemic, what are they like? Well, actually, what is the one seminal event that's going to take away control? A global pandemic. And when you come on to do a Zoom call or you have these Microsoft Teams meeting, are you actually giving people support? Do they feel supported? Now, evidence is coming out that people don't feel supported over the internet, they, that they actually need that social connection with people. What we're finding is also at the start of the pandemic, you had a reduction in demands because people weren't doing the physical infrastructure of the job. But what we've seen over the course of, of each wave is an increase in demands, a lack of control, because we're not quite sure when we're going to come out and what's going to happen, and then a lack of support. So it's fascinating. The model that was developed 40 years ago is still even more replicable now as we go into the next level. So, yeah, people working and working in the context of offices, we may not go back into open plan offices as we know it for a few years. 30% occupancy or 40% occupancy may be the norm in places of work as we go forward. And I think with that comes some changes. And we've got to look at how we manage people's mental health remotely. That isn't just simply asking that question. It's about what do you do as an organization to put in place systems to support that. And that's what a number of organizations have done. They've put in really good support systems. You know, they have informal meetups. They, they chat with their employees. They're training their line managers about managing people remotely. And most of it's about trust, isn't it? You've got to trust each other. And we will get through this and we will return to a place where we go back to work. But I think we have to accept it will be different. You talked about trust there and how important in terms of communication for an employer to, to communicate properly 
that it is actually safe for employees to, to return to work and actually to reassure those anxieties around maybe even something as simple as, as getting the tube on, you know, traveling into work. Whereas, you know, 18 months ago, that might not have been an issue. But now you might be, as an employee, very anxious about getting the tube into work or getting public transport into work. How do you address that as an employer? Well, I think, you have, you know, again, you make reference to it and you talk to people about how their day has gone. So in a general conversation, what we have known is exactly that. People are like, before they've got into work, they're, they're they're quite stressed out because they've gone through all of these interactions they didn't want to do and now they're in work and then suddenly a small problem we work becomes very large so actually what you need to be doing is in your management of your people and in and in your support of your colleagues is you need to be saying how was your day getting in oh god wasn't it wasn't it a little bit chaotic almost normalizing that conversation you're gonna it's interesting that you talk about the tube Oh, it was full of people and it was horrible. And that. So we did that before. And now what we need to do is to say, okay, in that context, I don't know about you, but it's like they won't socially distance. You can't socially distance. And it makes me feel like that. So having that conversation, it makes me feel like that and make it a normal thing to do in the workplace is really important because that will help to take the feeling of anxiety of I must be the only person feeling this to I'll flip an egg everyone's kind of feeling this and you know and having a cup of tea when you get into the office and sitting down and taking five ten minutes before you sit at that computer and you go off on your emails and everything just take time to 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 do that and if you're not coping and and struggling and things to say to people around you i've had a really bad morning getting in you'll be pleasantly surprised that a lot of people just go oh my god yeah totally know what that's about if you're managing you want to have those conversations we don't know how have them look at the talking toolkit that we've done for work-related stress and mental health and that'll take you through the kind of conversations you need to have train your managers to show human emotions that's what i say all the time you know we do it to our kids we do it to our family we do it to our mates but then we go into work and we detach ourselves and i think it's rubbish because actually what do you need the same set of things you've already got if you're being managed by someone or if you're managed it's the same way we want to have the opportunity to express how we feel you've been working really closely with the bsi on the upcoming iso 45003 standard what can you tell us about that yeah it's been an, an epical piece of work i've spent two and a half years of working on it and it will be released in june of this year and it's a voluntary standard for psychological health safety and well-being in the context of workplace so it's so the technical term is the psychosocial work factors and work but it's much easier if you say it for what it is and it sets out what you need to have in place as an organization to improve psychological health safety and well-being enshrined in that the factors that you've seen from the management standards and from the canadian standards which is about creating workplaces that actually promote health rather than create ill health so that means tackling work-related stress at source not simply saying i want you to be resilient and mindful and do nothing about the source of stress and that in terms of the science is what they call the primary level of intervention so it's tackling at organizational level and resilience and mindfulness is what what is called a tertiary so it's it's at the individual level and the secondary which is where we train our managers and you train your people about systems and processes how to improve their health simply giving someone a set of fruit and a head massage does not constitute an intervention nor does having a mental health first aid mean that you're not liable it's a very much a tertiary intervention and so what should employers be doing uh, in preparation for that standard coming into force what can they do to prepare 
what they should have been doing for the last 15 years, which is doing the risk assessments for work-related stress, which is uh, required under the management reg three, and then doing something about it. I know that sounds slightly gibbish, but, but actually the point is what 45,003 does is latches on to an already pre-existing position that the UK has had, which is we expect you to do this. Now, traditionally, we've taken a very passive role in, in encouraging people to do it and be doing this because this is the right thing to do. But I think, you know, we, we have to reflect on the fact that 17.8 million days lost to work-related stress, which is the single biggest amount of days lost, and that was one week into the pandemic, in essence, also highlights the fact that this is a, a large problem and there are certain implied duties and that's what we, we would expect you to do. But the reason we expect you to do it is because it's the right thing to do. And here's the thing, if you look at companies that are successful, they all have key factors and one of the one of those is that they look after their people they have established health and well-being programs and they have low staff turnover and i think that the reason you have low staff turnover is your people are being cared for and if ever there was a time to care for people it's now it's like during this pandemic and as they come out of the pandemic and that's how we fight the stigma as we talked about before we reduce stigma by normalizing mental health and we reduce it by having those conversations with people about our actions need to be that you need to look at authentic leaders don't you you know we all know of really good leaders you go wow yeah you know and you will work that's really important being with people who are authentic and leaders who really do get mental health You've touched on a, um, a couple of these examples, but I also understand you, you do a weekly kind of coffee catch up on, on your LinkedIn account. But what kind of other tips would you would you have for people, uh, for employers and employees for, for looking after their people and avoiding work related stress? First of all, I would deeply encourage everyone to have a coffee, <laughs> as you'd expect. Although we're on a podcast, I have got my coffee in front of me and my Mars bar. Uh, not advertising them but yeah so the, the thing is I think for me mental health and the managing of people's mental health and their work-related stress is no different than any other risk in the workplace we just have to find ways of being creative now I know companies that are really have done some very creative things and a utility company that put a garden shed on the back of a I'm trying to think of the where we where it's got wheels and you uh, and you take it to the tr- anyway it'll come to me but they, they they just put it in the center of their building they left it there and they called it the head shed it was an innovative way of getting people to talk about mental health trailer that's the word i'm looking for and that's an example of being really creative. i always encourage people to be creative and look at their workforce and think what is it that their workforce tally up to you know i've done some work with the foundry sector on mental health and i developed a training program with the sector and in it we looked at the kind of things that drive the individuals in that sector, predominantly male. And you can get this message across if you do it in a way which is engaging. That would be the things that I would say. Look at how you message this. Make sure it's not top down, it's bottom up. Find people in the organization who are keen to be almost voices of the workforce. Because if you get people who get this, then the mental health and the work-related stress becomes very much normal. I know organizations who just say, well, this is what we do. We look after our people. We have those conversations. So communication, simplicity, make it normal and be yourself. Fight against those stigma situations and show compassion and empathy. I really don't understand why we switch those emotions off when we come to work. It doesn't make sense, does it? apparently not supposed to be empathetic at work why not that detachment really is is something that fascinates me when you have that conversation no one can explain why they should be 
some fascinating insight there from Peter. I found his outlook on the three parallel pandemics particularly interesting. It really struck home how we might be facing the aftermath of a coronavirus pandemic and the impact it has had on people for quite some considerable time. Hopefully there were some useful tips to take away with you about tackling work-related stress, which you can put into place within your organisation. In part two, you're going to hear an interview with Cleveland Police's Blue Light Programme Coordinator and Wellbeing Inspector, Phil Spencer. Phil was named as the winner for the SHP Award for Trailblazer and Workplace Wellbeing at the back end of 2020, with judges highlighting his desire to support all things workplace wellbeing. Phil has been a key component in driving forward the workplace wellbeing agenda and changing the way mental health is thought about in policing. He has transformed how Cleveland Police supports its staff in better understanding mental health and how to cope with the trauma and difficulties of the working environment, especially during the pandemic. Let's pick up the chat with me asking Phil about his background and how he got into a career in the police force. So I didn't actually start in the police till I was 30. Well, I started off as a lifeguard, a gym instructor and kind of worked my way up. But then at 30, I thought, do you know what? I can't wear shorts and have long hair anymore. I needed to grow up. So I wasn't qualified in anything else. So my wife's had a couple of friends who were in the police, had a chat with them and I thought, yeah, we'll, we'll try that because, you know, it's about helping people and working for the public service. It kind of appealed to me. And at Cleveland Police, you're responsible for the Blue Light Programme Coordinator and Wellbeing in- Inspector. Can you tell me a little bit about that programme and what that involves? Yeah, a bit of history, I suppose. So 2014, 2015, the government recognised that emergency services kind of world, we needed help because of trauma, for example, and our work in general. So the Mind Blue Light programme came along, initiated by Mind Charity. So I got involved with it probably about 2016. And it was just something that interested me. And I think looking back, I could see where it was all going, how this wasn't going to go away, how it wasn't going to be a quick fix and how it needed to be a sustainable programme and initiative. And just kind of, as as not, it's not meant to sound selfish, Ian, but finally I could see something that was actually for us rather than the public you know that's what we do we protect vulnerable people and communities all day long because that's what we do but nobody was looking after us or trying to look after us because it just wasn't the done thing so I kind of was given an attachment for three months to set it all up that attachment lasted nearly two years and then I went back on frontline on response and it just kept snowballing and snowballing. We think that we're probably the first force or the only force in the country who has, has a warranted cop posted into the wellbeing team. But it's not just about the Blue Light programme. It's obviously it's cascaded into lots of things. You know, I've gone down a training route that I never, ever would have imagined and saw coming. So qualified first aid mental health trainer. And it just just lots of things like that. And I think it helps, though, by being a cop, people can resonate and have a bit of credibility as well. Yeah, it's interesting what you say there about the kind of looking after yourselves. But we work quite closely with London's Air Ambulance. And we've also run content before on SHP about police officers dealing with some of the really serious crimes and some of the trauma they go through. I mean, London's Air Ambulance have volunteers from London Ambulance Service, and they are only posted for a certain amount of time with, with London's Air Ambulance because of the sheer trauma that they see. And actually, yeah. you're right, actually a lot of what you do is about caring for the public and caring for others. And actually it's important that in order for you to be able to do that job properly, that people are looking after you as, you know, you need to feel well within yourself to be able to go out there and do your job efficiently. So I think it's a great program. 
Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, it's, it's, it's been here for nearly 200 years, certainly in policing. You know, we evolved nearly 200 years ago. It's always been here, but we've never, ever, ever talked about it because we didn't have to. We were, had these uniforms that protect us from depression, anxiety, trauma, etc. And I think now that the lid's come off and the people have actually realised, hang on, we're not unique. I would never say that we're unique compared to general public. But what we do, what we see, what we hear, what we live with daily is quite unique. The best quote I probably can give you is, you know, a lot, lots of research has been done about trauma from King's College and places like that. General public, four traumatic incidences in their lifetime. Four. If you think about this, police officers and staff in their career, between 600 to 800. Wow. That's a lot of trauma. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's, it's insane, isn't it, when you put it like that and actually lay it out like that? Yeah, and that's why people like me, I suppose, are trying to do as much as we can to to break this all down and to get people to go, do you know what, that has actually happened to me for years and now hopefully this is an opportunity to to engage and, and make people a little bit better. And how has the programme been received within the force up there? Do you get much engagement? Is it well received amongst fellow officers? We are lucky or I'm lucky how we did it because we never stopped. The funding actually ended in 2019. So for four years, it was funded through the government. Unfortunately, funding ended, the legacy was left. But what happened was Mind challenged other organisations or organisations to keep it going. So the way we did it and how it worked is I coordinated it all. So at the moment, I've got 130 Blue Light Champions, peer support, advocates, whatever you want to call them, we call them Blue Light Champions, who all do their day jobs. It could be a detective sergeant, an inspector, a PC, a PCSO, but they're all volunteer to do a Blue Light Champion role. They get spare time in their roles. They're the eyes and ears that look out for us. We kept ours going. We continue to do champion courses. You know, I, I create more, but it was hard to start off with. Probably because we didn't have anything like this. We're so cynical. We see it as a ticky box thing. Oh, this initiative, it'll be here today, gone tomorrow. So it's taken me, I'm going to say five, six years to get to this point to kind of be a bit more open now. But certainly for Cleveland Police, I'm very biased, but I think we are doing a good job because we kept it going and the force have had insight to put somebody kind of coordinating it all as well and that's just expanded mm. you're clearly doing a good job you know part of your work over the last 12 months or so has, has meant that you are the winner of shp's trailblazer in workplace well-being award for, for 2020 so congratulations on that how did Thank it you. feel when you found out about the fact that you were shortlisted and then when you found out that you'd won the award i've been called many of things in my nearly 20 years career in policing but never a trailblazer so i was um, yeah, I was gobsmacked. We don't do these things for recognition or rewards. We do it for the right reasons. And I always say for, for wellbeing initiatives, like everyone's trying to do, you need the right people doing it for the right reasons. For me, that's critical. It's absolutely key role. We shouldn't be doing it for promotion. We shouldn't be doing it for awards. You're doing it because you deeply care about people and want to help. But on the other hand, when I got this email, I, do you know, and I, I actually nearly deleted it as well, because, you know, when you get a lot of emails, and you, I actually just about, oh, what's this? So I, yeah, and yeah, I was blown away. But I always, and still do and will do, that it's, yes, it, it is my name on the, on the trophy, but it's a massive team effort. And like I've already said there, 
you know, we've got 130 blue light champions that have their day jobs, they're helping colleagues. I've got a great well-being team here. For me, it's a team effort, but it is nice. Don't get me wrong. It is nice to kind of, you know, we don't do it for awards, but when they come along, of course, it makes you think, actually, we are doing something right. Because, you know, a lot of the stuff that you do is confidential and you can't put performance and statistics on it because it is confidential, it's sensitive. And to be honest, I still don't know who nominated me. I don't know whether it was somebody internal or external. So whoever that was, if you are listening to this, thank you very much. I think it only strengthens the work that you're doing as well. You say, you know, it's, it's a team effort, but actually it strengthens the work that you're doing. It highlights it and it gives some recognition to you and the wider team. You know, Ian, it's not just it's not just local. It's not just in Cleveland. It, well, it's in Cleveland Police, but it's, it's other emergency services in Cleveland, but regional and national as well. You know, the reach on, for example, social media, Twitter example, it's an absolutely fantastic way of spreading the message about well-being because a lot of people a lot of emergency services personnel either they don't have time to read internal messages because they're too busy or they get bombarded with messages but everybody has a smartphone and when they're off duty or even on a meal break they're scrolling down stuff and if they're seeing messages about how organizations are trying to support them then i think that that actually clicks with them I think that's become evident across health and safety in general. I think not outside of health and safety, even I think people in general now are becoming a lot more aware of the organisation that they work for and how that organisation treats both their staff and treats the public as well. I think that's changing quite a lot now and people yeah. care about how sustainable the company they work for, how ethical those companies are. And I think that is a, that's the workforce in general in this country that's started to change a lot more now. So I think it's yeah, really valuable. Yeah. Absolutely. Going into the police force, as you mentioned, you obviously had a desire and care to, to look after people. But where does your drive and passion for well-being come from? Three reasons. Three reasons. You join the police and you get interviewed. And, and part of you is we all say we want to protect people, protect communities, fight crime and all of that. That still stands today and that will never change. However, I think it was when it was probably about a year before the Blue Light programme came out in 2015. When you're a supervisor, if any of your staff are off, you become a welfare officer. So at the time, I was temporary inspector and two of my sergeants on shift. One ended up medicaled out with post-traumatic stress disorder and the other one, work-related stress. Now, work-related stress, he was a good friend of mine. The other guy, well, both of them, great blokes, great cops, great humans, but disintegrated in front of my eyes. And it was just, I'd never seen, it was so sad, it was so awful to see. But when you're in the, when you're a welfare officer, you, you, you go to the houses when they're off and, you know, go and have a brew, how are you doing? And, and, and there was times I was sat there at the houses and thinking, I, I don't know what to say to you. I'm not sure I can leave you in this house by yourself because I don't know what you're going to do. Um, and it was like, I'm a police inspector. I'm also a husband and a dad. I need to do something about this. It's not right, this. You know, I'm 15 years into the job and I'm a supervisor. And that was the first reason. Probably about a year later, lesson to myself. So I used to have loads of running and marathons and, and loads every day, to be fair, about six, at least six mile a day running. And what I didn't realise that it also worked as my coping mechanism, my stress buster, my physical release, which kept me mentally well. And I had that taken off me. I felt a bit about that because at one point I didn't think I was going to be able to walk again because of the pain. It was just awful. So 
I'll never run again, ever. I can pass the bleep test, but I'll never be like what I used to be. So I had to adapt. So I got into spinning and cycling. But it taught me a lesson about that was my coping mechanism. And I was on three potent, what I would class at the time, uh, mental health drugs, Prengabalin, Tramadol, and Amitriptylin at the same time. Even then I felt a little bit alienated or had to keep it confidential because could I actually tell anybody? It was on then three mental health. Obviously, they were, they were for pain relief. So, yeah, I had to find a, a different way. And that's why we always tell people about you will all have your coping mechanisms. You will all have your stress buster. You will know what makes you feel well. It might even be watching Netflix all weekend. But if that works, do it. Do it often. So mine now is cycling. The last one is probably it's very raw still and it'll, it's, it'll never be over and it continues is in 2017 at the time she was 12 my daughter grace she got she actually got diagnosed with um, anorexia first time of mine in my wife's life of course a world collapsed admitted to hospital for a week threatened with the mental health capacity act and i hate to say it but i could i couldn't hope i felt a bit if it wasn't for my wife I don't know where it would be because she just she went into mom mode. She took over. I was coming to work, putting that brave face on, going home, taking this off and just being Phil. Felt a bit. I just didn't know what to say to my wife, say to my daughter Grace. You know, we had no we had no marriage. We had no relationship. We did, but Amy's focus was on Grace, of course. And it was like the worst three years of our, our lives. We had a little boy as well. So he, obviously he's like getting left out. What's going on here, dad? Why is, why is mum and Grace always crying? And and I just seen the pain and I just thought, if, even if I can do a little bit, because I won't be the only cop or person whose family, either young kids or elderly parents are struggling. So trying to get these messages out and, I actually did a blog about it two weeks ago and it took me three years to actually write and it, it still hurt when I wrote it but I needed to get it to get it out there and a lot of it's to do with uh, the stigma isn't it you mentioned sort of you not wanting to talk about the the sort of medication that you were on yeah so, I mean going back to your your nomination your nomination for the award called your force of nature and driving forward the workplace well-being agenda and changing the way mental health is thought about in the police force how much change do you think was needed and 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 just and, and is there still work to be done both massive massive change needs to be done um again not just policing not just policing all emergency services and we've even touched on earlier at the start there you've got you've got volunteers as well mountain rescue rnli and people like that you know they, these guys do it for free never mind us getting paid for it but there's always been that bravado it is a male dominated or it has been a male dominated sort of organizations all emergency services that thankfully is, is starting to break down but for policing yeah 200 years nothing don't talk about it and that's what we've been doing. We've put it somewhere in our brain, forgot about it. And that's when I think when people are retiring, people get time to process it. And people are leaving, retiring the place ill. Let's change that culture. Let's change all that stigma. When people are first starting to have a problem, let's get that early intervention in and keep them well and get that support. So it's taken, I'm going to say six years from starting off to now, to finally start to make a difference, I think, certainly within Cleveland and hopefully, yeah, nationally as well. 
there's still a lot of work to do. And I kind of what I would say on that is I'm very in, I'm going to say about 15 years time, we wouldn't be sat here having this conversation because it would be everyday business. I think what the issue is now, and it's nobody's fault, because I probably class myself in that, but for whatever reason, I've managed to adapt a little bit. For people 15, 20 years plus service who are potentially supervisors as well, kind of all we've known in the police force is looking after the public, fighting crime, communities, performance and statistics. We've always forgotten about ourselves. And I think sometimes people find it difficult now to change and get into that mindset of let's look after each other a little bit more. So, you know, with the new recruits coming through now and they get this from day one, they get a load of input about mental health awareness, first day mental health training, resilience, coping mechanisms. I'm kind of hoping that these guys are going to be like the new breed coming through and say 15 years time, it will just be everyday business for us. And part of what you've done to help get that message across is, is set up a wellbeing podcast within the force. Uh, how long has that been going and, and how has that been received? Yeah, we've been doing it um, probably about seven or eight months now. We, and purposely, we've had to adapt because of COVID, obviously. We want, we as a wellbeing team, we want to be as proactive as we can. Um, we've got a wellbeing van, go out, see, the, see, the, see our officers and staff. But obviously, because of social distancing, restrictions, lockdown 3.0, we can't, so what do we do? We've had to adapt with virtual stuff, like a bit like this, well-being webinars, newsletters. And then Amy, one of our counsellors, came up, well, can we do podcasts? So what we've done, we've done seven now, seven. So we've tried to do one every month. And it's generally been with one of our Blue Light champions. And it's just talking about well-being. So we've had a PCSO, a detective inspector, a sergeant, a cop. And we actually did our chief constable two weeks ago and we released the podcast internally on Time to Talk on the 4th of February, which I thought was quite pertinent with it being the last one, unfortunately. But it was good to see that our leader, our chief constable, came in and um, it, was a, it was all about all our podcasts are all about well-being. And then we cascade them. We upload them onto our system. So anybody, anytime, anywhere can listen to them, whether it's four o'clock in the morning or if they're working from home, because we appreciate that it's not just about frontline. People are working from home, have been for a year, and that has been an issue as well, because people are maybe used to working with a team of 20, and if they live by themselves, they're getting nothing as well. So we try, we just try and be creative and try and be innovative as we can, and that's, I suppose, where the podcast came from. I think that's uh, that's crucial. It's, we hear that quite a lot. It's crucial in t- tackling the stigma is getting your senior leaders to come and speak out because I think if people if people have that fear that if they speak out about their mental health problems, it's actually going to f- affect their career prospects. But actually, getting senior management to come out and sharing their own thoughts, their own ideas, their own experiences actually plays a huge part in helping people go. Actually, I feel comfortable stepping forward myself. Yeah, absolutely. And it was really good. And, and I think you've hit the nail on the head there. And I don't think it's just put with policing as well and senior leader teams. Because there's still a rank structure, not only in police, but other services, I'm still not sure how a senior leader would feel comfortable, for example, in the police talking to a PC. Now, for me, in the well-being and blue light world, rank has no structure at all. Yes, I'm an inspector. Yes, I've got these pips on. But it doesn't matter. I would hope 
that anybody of our staff, whether it be one of the cleaners, front desk, PC, PCSO, up to the chief constable, could ring me up, email me just for a bit of support and advice. And at the weekend, I got an amazing, amazing email off, off a cop just asking about some advice as he was supporting one of his friends. And he was just, he actually thanked me for being so supportive about well-being and being so accessible and how he felt confident that he could just email me. You know, I don't even know who this lad is, never spoke to him, but he felt he could contact me direct. And for me, that's how it should be with well-being. And you touched on it a little bit already. Uh, I think part of another thing that stood out for the judging panel uh, for yourself was how you've carried out all this additional work in, in what is an immensely tough time for the police, you know, frontline worker. How has the pandemic affected your role and, and that of the police in general? It has for me a little bit, obviously nowhere near for our frontline troops, bless them. We go back to last year. So we had, we are trailblazers because we are, I think, the only force in the country to be delivering First aid, mental health training to everybody, made it mandatory. So we're doing all our supervisors now. So every single police officer and police staff supervisor get a two-day course and become supervising first aid, mental health. It's going to make a massive difference. It is making a massive difference. The feedback's been amazing. This time last year, we had to go into lockdown 1.0 and obviously everything stopped didn't it we had to stop training I stopped going out so again a bit of an innovative idea it was Michelle our well-being manager said um, could we get hold of a national well-being police van so national police well-being service Oscar Kilo have 10 well-being vans so we thought I wonder if they'd lend us one so they did so for two or three months last year from about March, April to June, July time, I was taking the van out, day shifts, back shifts, night shifts, weekends, just with a load of freebies and a load of refreshments like squidgy police, cars, toys, chocolate. Everyone loves chocolate, but leaflets as well of support about trauma, about well-being, what the well-being team can offer, because we're obviously we were still offering it, but it was just online. But it was that visibility of somebody going out, I mean, the van has well-being on, so going out and just talking. And again, the feedback was great. I think 833 visitors we had. I mean, I'm not naive enough. They all just wanted freebies, didn't want to speak to me. But it was out and about then. It's getting the name across and what we do and the services. And obviously, because we can't be proactive. My world changed a little bit because most of my world was out delivering the training because it's new to us we've only done 160 so far we've only got 1,840 people left to train but in that as well going back to new recruits there Ian when I said these are the new breed the new guys coming through all our new recruits now within their first two weeks get a full day mental health first day training fantastic again trailblazing you could call it what I feel and really for for the front line, the police officers is yes, and it's not just about police. And I'm not saying we're unique and better than anybody emergency services because we're not. You know, you look at the NHS, God bless them. So who'd have thought as a cop that they haven't to wear the PPE, they haven't to wear masks, they haven't to social distance from the, the people when they're going to a job, they haven't to ask control room is there is there any COVID indicators there? 
they know that they're potentially they're going to a house full of COVID and potentially they're going to get infected. Potentially they're going to take that home with them. You know, we've had people living away from the families initially because of that fear. Some of us have been vulnerable and people have had to shield from working from home for a year after being in a team full of 25 mates, colleagues. So that's alienated them. But my main point, I think, on this one, and it, it, it does frustrate me, really. This time last year, everyone was out on the step clapping all the emergency services, particularly NHS, rightly so, rightly so. And I think there was there was a lot of public support for every one of us, police included. For me, that lasted two weeks with the police. And then all of a sudden, because we were the bad guys again, we, you know, we were lazy, we were racist, we were corrupt. Black Lives Matter didn't help. People were, were demonstrating about COVID. And then police officers were enforcing the law and having to put fines on people. So that affects, you know, you, you, so you've got COVID, you've got the pandemic, you've got the worry about going into houses, picking up COVID, you've got the right PPE on, people are shielding. And then you've got the media kind of twisting the knife a little bit as well. You know, that... Black Lives Matter, for example, horrendous. It was in America, but it was just twisted and, and the poor cops. So the poor cops who were on the front line, they were getting the backlash because it was them that were getting the, the, the backlash from the from the public. So, yeah, it has changed. Um, obviously, there's loads of different practices and procedures. We've had to adapt our buildings, one-way systems, PPE. And it's been a challenge, but a, a hand on heart, I think, Clayton Place, we've done really well as a force, as an organisation. Um, we, we, we've, uh, as we do, as police forces do, we've, we've, we've ran towards the pandemic. We run towards a terrorist attack. We run towards a pandemic. It would just be nice to get a little bit more support off the public now and again. Absolutely, couldn't couldn't agree more. I just want to touch quickly before um, before I let you go on on technology. Obviously, you use social media to to help get your messages across, and you've obviously had the podcast. What role do you think technology and social media has in people's both positive and negative in, in people's mental health? Obviously, we've seen some well documented instances of abuse on social media as people are you know they're isolated and therefore they turn to social media to to abuse people. What role do you think that has played on, on health and well-being and what can be done about it? Yeah, it's positive. I, 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 well, if, it's, if it's used right, correctly, it's fantastic. Yeah, so I only do I only do Twitter. I like Twitter. Uh, I don't tend to do the other ones, probably because I'm lazy and it takes a few seconds, doesn't it? But what I like about that social media is generally you only connect with people who you want to connect. So for me, I've got, you know, it's all about well-being. But I pick up a lot of links, advice, support, CPD stuff that I can cascade to my network here and the wider network. And the, probably the best example I can give you is we've been running a anti-stigma uh, and discrimination campaign and it's called blue on the loo and it's pretty much what it says on the tin it's posters that you stick on a wall yes people say oh yeah that that force just well-being is just a poster on the wall obviously we do a lot more than that but we've been doing it for four years now but every month we change the theme so we kind of do four posters every single month for four years and i ask my blue light champions to put these posters 
on the toilets around the organization. But I get quite a lot of stuff of social media, you know, borrow with pride and all that. And we just adapt them. So like messages, if, if one person sees these blue on the loop posters from a message that I've borrowed with pride of Twitter, then job done if they reach out and ask for help. So I do think it, play, it can play a massive part. Yes, I've connected to so many people. And, you know, if you um, hit the right people, who can follow that and who can promote your messages, then it just it just goes like that and it's incredible. Of course, there's a downside. Yes, you can block people and, you know, you get that, well, if you don't like it, you shouldn't read it and block it. But I do think the organisations, the companies do have a bit, you know, it's, it's obviously going around with the footballers now, isn't it? I do think the big giants, Facebook, Twitter and Instagram and all that, do have a part to play in. Difficult, well, difficult. How to police it, if you like. And then you look at the last year or so, celebrities, Caroline Flack, for example, you know, the abuse that, she, that, that these people are getting. So I think as a social media community, we can all do a little bit better, look out for each other, because it is a great network. You know, if someone's feeling down, you can guarantee someone who that person has never, ever met, the other side of the country can message them and pick them up a little bit. And I found it amazing. And I have done myself, you know, I've probably disclosed stuff to some people that I've never met, but it just, it's just a net, it's just a well-being network. I think having that opportunity, like you say, especially if you're, if you're isolated, you're living alone, having that opportunity to speak to people that you don't necessarily know. Sometimes you feel more comfortable sharing that with people that you don't know. So actually I do think that, yeah, you're right. There's, there's some real value there. So, so just finally, if anybody wants to kind of follow you and, and pick up on some of the initiatives, how do they find you on Twitter and, and where do they follow you? Yeah. So I am on, on Twitter. So my Twitter is nothing, nothing spectacular. So my Twitter handle is um, at Phil Spencer 1316, but you can't guess what my colour number is at work. <laughs> so on Twitter, Phil Spencer 1316, I've just started LinkedIn. I must admit only last week and I'm liking what I'm seeing so far, but I need to talk my game on that one a little bit. Anybody who's listening who, who wants to some advice and support how we've done things. If you just contact me on my email at work, which is um, philip.spencer at cleveland.pnn.police.uk. And whether that's local, regional, national, you know, if I can help, I can help, I will help because I, I do feel as I'm in a, a privileged position because there's not many in this position in the country. And I've never seen now, not only internally, but externally, the amount of support that is out there for emergency services workers, whether it's in their own organisation or charities or the third sector or other companies. And it's just about knowing where to connect and support and signpost to people. A really candid interview with Phil. It was interesting to listen to some of the experience he has had in his life and his career and how he has harnessed those to drive him forward. It's often easy to forget the stress and strain workers on the front line are under, especially at this current time, and the challenges that come with policing the internet in this social media age. If you'd like to read about the blog post Phil mentioned, or follow him on social media, you can find the links in the episode description. I'd like to say a huge thank you to both Peter Kelly and Phil Spencer for their time in putting this episode together. Thanks too to you for tuning in and listening. 
If you've not listened to the previous eight episodes of the Safety and Health podcast, please do go back and check those out. Last time out, we heard from Jill Koenig about the pressing need to improve building safety culture post-Grenfell. I'd also highly recommend going back and listening to episode three, which provided an insight on how to tackle burnout and why mental health is such a taboo subject, particularly in the workplace. If you like what you hear, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts to get the latest episodes as soon as they are released. And we'd be really grateful if you could rate us on Apple Podcasts, as that's the best way to share the show and get it out to a wider audience. Please do stay tuned to shponline.co.uk for the very latest health and safety news. And you can also subscribe to our daily newsletter. Thank you very much for listening and see you on the next episode. Music.